Today's show is sponsored by our good friends over at Tortuga Backpacks. And whether you are traveling the world and visiting the Pope like today's guest, or whether you're just visiting your grandma in Ohio, you want to make sure that you have the right travel backpack. And if you're looking for a top-of-the-line travel backpack, one that is perfect, a great size, can still be a carry-on, but fit a ton of stuff, you want to head on over to tortugabackpacks.com. Check out the three styles of backpacks that they have over there right now. And if you do pick one up, make sure to use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters, and that will get you 10% off your entire order. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 179. In Amsterdam, there are more bikes than people, and 40% of people commute to work by bicycle. Just make sure to buy a junker, because 20% of bikes get stolen. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who has been granted an audience with the Pope, celebrated New Year's in North Korea, hung out with monks on Mount Athos, walked on hot coals, and still finds time to run a charity that helps fight human trafficking. Jared Brock from jaredbrock.com and co-founder of Hope for the Sold. Jared, thanks so much for joining me today and welcome. Travis, thanks so much for having me. Jared, I'm super excited to have you on today, not just because you're coming from Guelph, where my college roommate grew up, but because I got an email intro to you and it was enough to make me say just from like two lines, yes, this is going to be an awesome interview. So we're not going to let these people down, will we? No, not at all. And I got to say, I'm a big fan of the show. I'm actually a listener. I listen full time when I go for walks. And the episode that you did with Heather on food made me almost give up being a vegetarian. It was so... <laughs> I was dying. It was terrible. I was so yeah. hungry. <laughs> well, that that's our goal, really. We don't want that's people right. to travel more. We just don't <laughs> want them right. to be vegetarians, right? <laughs> And we're going to be chatting about a ton of stuff. Uh, your amazing travel stories, including you know North Korea, the Pope, walking on hot coals, a bunch of stuff we mentioned, what it's like to live your life out of a 1975 Airstream. We're going to talk about your charity, Hope for the Sold, which works to fight human trafficking. And of course, some of your best travel tips and of course, mishaps after visiting 40 plus countries, 40 plus states, and 10 Canadian provinces. But first, the first question I want to ask you, the newsboys... Played a big part in your life. Now, not a lot of people are going to know who the Newsboys are, but I, I certainly do, and some people will. So, tell us a little bit about the Newsboys. Oh man, yeah. So, like, the Newsboys are pretty much the biggest Christian band ever, and uh, I actually kissed my future wife at a Newsboys concert in the summer of the seventh grade. We were thirteen years old. So, 
thank you, Newsboys, for uh, figuring my life out for me. <laughs> yeah, it, they certainly are probably the biggest Christian band. I went to, I don't know, I can't even count how many of their concerts growing <laughs> up. Many of my good childhood memories are at Newsboys concerts, so we share that in common. A common bond around a band that sings some pretty goofy but uh, entertaining songs, at least. Well, and, and do you remember the drum kit where the drummer would strap in and this, he would actually like rotate upside down and stuff? Like That's the craziest kid ever. Yeah, yeah, that was the thing. They put on awesome concerts. Uh, if you guys don't know the Newsboys, you at least want to check them out a little bit. They're they're certainly fun. And, First um, link in the show notes. <laughs> there you go, the Newsboys. drum sets. There we go. I want to talk a little bit about your upbringing because on your About page, and I started reading the About page some, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to formulate some questions for this interview. And then I, you know, the more I read, I just thought, I don't even have to ask any questions like this is going to be a great conversation between two people who love to travel you have some incredible experiences but i liked where you said in there that you were told as a teenager that you were either going to be a pastor or a prisoner <laughs> because i think that sums up a lot of people's um upbringings who might not be the best kid out there so tell us a little bit about your upbringing and about if travel played any part in your life during that time um, well, like, I mean, I got permanently kicked out of Sunday school in the fifth grade and, uh, you know, got kicked out of a Christian camp and like, I was a pretty, um, <laughs> wild child, but, uh, my, it was actually my eighth grade teacher. Uh, he said that I was either going to be a pastor or a prisoner. So I was a youth pastor for, uh, a number of years. So I'm one for two so far. So, uh, hopefully we can <laughs> avoid the fulfillment of his prophecy, but, um, yeah, travel actually didn't play uh, a role at all in my life growing up. Um, we, you know, my family like went to camp every year. I think we went to Florida once when I was 10, but um, I didn't actually travel until after I got married. And my wife's a missionary kid. She was, her dad works for World Vision. She was actually born in Kenya, raised in Ethiopia and Finland. And uh, so she's got her EU citizenship and whatnot. And so for her, the airport is kind of like her home. We actually like when we fly somewhere, we actually go early, have dinner. She gets a tea, buys a magazine, settles in. <laughs> it's like the most stress-free travel ever. But um, yeah, so I didn't actually start traveling until after I got married. And in the last six years, we've been to over 40 countries. So I'm, I'm making up for lost time. Yeah, so what then brought you to travel? Was it your wife? Was it her wanting to travel? Or was it something you had wanted to do but just didn't do because your parents weren't doing it, you didn't have time, all those other reasons? You know, as a kid growing up and then as like a young adult, there's a lot of reasons why people wouldn't travel. Did you want to do it and just didn't? Or was she kind of the driving force? Well, inadvertently, uh, she was the driving force in that we had almost like an unwritten prenup agreement um, when I was like... Uh, we were like talking about marriage and she said, I'll marry you under one condition. And the condition is that you have to let me live in a Spanish speaking part of the world for at least half a year at some point in our marriage because she had taken Spanish as a minor in school. And so I was like, yeah, 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 marry me, thinking that that would never happen. Travis. <laughs> but uh, two years later, we had kind of like a, a gap of time. Um, before I was going to start an internship with one of my favorite authors. And so we bought one-way tickets to Central America. And over five months, we traveled from the Panama Canal to Florida by land transport, volunteering at organic farms and intentional communities the whole way. And uh, so we went through all seven Central American countries. And uh, man, that just, that was it. That sparked it for me. 
Wow. And so before that, and even before you got married, let's back up a little bit. What were you, you know, what were you doing? How did your life kind of flow? Because you've done a lot of interesting things. And again, if people want to know everything, they can go to the about page, really well written, kind of documents your whole history. But I just find it fascinating that, again, you didn't want to travel kind of similar to me. I I traveled a little bit, but it wasn't like a huge part of my life. And then I had this sudden shift where now it, it is my life. But before that, what were you doing? Because you didn't end up, you did not end up as a prisoner, as we mentioned yeah, yet, yeah, right? So, yeah. what were you doing then between that time when you know you graduate high school and things like that, and then you meet your wife and you become this world traveler? Well, like I mean, I met my wife when I was twelve, and we got married when we were twenty-two. So I basically, I. I I went to a self-paced high school, which means you never had to go to class. So I, <laughs> this so sounds I awesome. Actually, yeah, tell tell us more. Great. So I actually skipped 56 days out of my final semester out of 72 days. And I actually like moved to another town and I got my real estate license. So I actually graduated from college before high school. And I was like easily the youngest realtor in Canada when I started. And I basically, I bought a fourplex and flipped it. And like, I owned two cars and a house and I was so stupid, but I had so much money. And, uh, and then I became a youth pastor. And then we started traveling and we started Hope for the Sold, our charity. And, and things kind of went from there. We started traveling. I interned with one of my favorite authors. Yeah. So it was pretty compressed timeline. You know, you graduate and then get married two years later. So (laughs) there wasn't a lot of time in there. (laughs) You kind of skip over real quick and you say, we started a charity, Hope for the Sold. I want to touch on that for sure because I think a lot of times, um, well, there's a lot of misconceptions around charities where a lot of times people even say like, I would love to start a charity. I have this desire or this goal to do this, to fix this problem. And you know, it's not near as easy as it sounds. I don't think. I've never done it. You seem to make it sound pretty easy. Oh yeah, we started this charity. Talk about how you started it, what it takes to run it, because a lot of people would probably say, you know, I'd like to do the same thing. I just have no idea where I would even start. Yeah. So we totally got into this one by accident. We were in Atlanta, Georgia at a conference called Catalyst and uh, a speaker named Gary Hagen from International Justice Mission spoke on modern day slavery. This is like eight or nine years ago now. And human trafficking wasn't the big buzzword that it is today. And we'd never heard of it before. And we came home and Michelle didn't speak for a couple of days. And I just said, we'll do something. And we didn't know what. So we started just like raising awareness with anyone who would listen. We would do coffee shops and art shows and concerts. And we started a group on this new website called The Facebook. You may have heard of it. And we just tried to like reach anyone who would listen. And pretty soon people were like, okay, I know that trafficking is a thing, but it's not in Canada, right? And we didn't have the like research and data and source material that we now have. So we actually um, drove about, uh, I'm doing the math, about 7,000 miles in 17 days to make it a documentary on trafficking in Canada and to really answer that question. And one thing led to another. We started the charity. Um, you know, you just you hire a lawyer to do that. Don't try and do it yourself. It's too crazy. <laughs> and then um, our most recent documentary took us to 10 countries. Uh, it's called Red Light, Green Light, and uh, that really looks into different prostitution uh, laws around the world and how countries are trying to prevent trafficking. So, um, yeah, it kind of it's just been like really slow and it's evolved. And people are always like, "Do you have a chapter in Washington? Do you have a chapter in in LA?" But it's like my wife and I, wherever our laptops are. So if we're in Washington, we're like, "Yeah, we got a chapter right now." <laughs> But it's not going to be there for long. So we've tried to stay lean and mean on purpose. We focus on one project at a time. 
And our, our mission statement is to um, fight human trafficking one word at a time. So like whether it's through writing, speaking, or film, that's the small role we play in this huge abolitionist puzzle. Yeah, you have a chapter wherever your Airstream is parked sometimes, Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> well, she's an old lady. She doesn't move anywhere. She's in one spot. Oh, so you've got an immobile Airstream. Even cooler, even cooler. <laughs> so with that, I think that is an important takeaway there is that it doesn't have to be as big or as hard to do something like that as a lot of people probably think, as I probably think. You know, it's a charity. So, of course, as you mentioned, oh, you have to have this branch and that. And I mean, you just said, I'm going to start doing this and then let the pieces fall as they may. And we're going to work towards this. I love that one word at a time idea. So what has been the reception? Like, what have you been able to do how were you able to, I, these are a lot of questions coming at you at once, but like the documentary, like let's start with, is it as easy as just saying, I'm, I want to do this and then taking those steps to do it like you guys did if someone was interested? Well, actually, Travis, I'd love to just comment on that point you made about staying lean and mean and small. Like, I mean, I think it's so instructive that like, you know, Facebook has 7,000 employees. Google has 50,000 employees. Amazon has like 120,000 employees, but WordPress has like 300 employees and they power a fourth of the internet like and they're and they're globally dispersed like you can have massive impact without having to have this big complicated structure and offices and huge amounts of staff and especially for those of us who love travel like that would actually be a hindrance to the to like appreciating life you sure. know what I mean yeah so, definitely I always yeah. get to the point where I want to do something like I have this big idea oh this is gonna be cool we're gonna get these employees and I think wait a second like what what am I looking to do here you know maybe I can do it in a lean and mean way and if I don't do it in then that's gonna hinder what my lifestyle is now is it worth mm-hmm. it yeah you have to say yes to things and you have to say no to things yeah for sure so then with the with the charity that you're running now what have you been able to accomplish over those eight, nine years since you first you know, decided, hey, this is something we want to get into, and now you've grown it, and like you said, you come out, you're coming out with the second documentary. How has that been able to kind of snowball then? Um, well, like, I mean, there's a bunch of things. The first one is um, we've got to be able to build so many amazing relationships across the nation and really around the world. Um, we've met you know, hundreds of, of incredible people fighting human trafficking all over the world. And those relationships to me are just so precious and valuable because um, it's good to know that there are people fighting for justice, fighting for things that matter in the world. So it's great that wherever we go, we have friends, we have family, we have people who are on the same page with an issue and we can connect. So, you know, anytime we go to a country, we can call up so and be like, hey, you want to have dinner? Hey, can we sleep over? Hey, you want to meet for breakfast? Like whatever. So that's like, such a beautiful side effect of like being on mission with other people. Like other things that have been really cool is we've been able to be part of getting two laws changed in Canada. So with our films, we do petition and letter drives, calls to our members of parliament, which are kind of like your congressmen. Um, we've um, Michelle and I have actually like flown to Ottawa and testified in parliamentary committee, which is like your congressional committee. And um, so the two laws that we've been part of getting changed, the first one was uh, – to implement a mandatory minimum sentence for child traffickers. So Canada actually didn't have a mandatory minimum. So like there was this teenager and there, there was this guy in Mississauga who trafficked two teenagers. He made 360 grand off of them in nine months and he got two and a half years in prison, got out, skipped bail. We don't know where he is. So it's like, what? <laughs> like, right. how is that a thing? Right? So now we have a mandatory minimum sentence of five years. 
And then the second law was surrounding prostitution. So Canada was thinking about legalizing, which ends up being a terrible idea if you're trying to prevent human trafficking because you end up having far more demand for paid sex, more men are willing to pay for it, and there's never enough voluntary women, so traffickers see it as a, an avenue to make tons of money. So what we have now in Canada is a law that actually makes it illegal to pay for sex, but makes it legal for women to sell sex. So they can actually um, get out of the trade. They're not seen as criminals. They're seen as overwhelmingly as victims, and they can get out. And there's support, you know, financial support for exit programs and stuff. So it's been crazy because, like, right now, the cops across Canada are being retrained, like, to not see, quote-unquote, hookers as criminals now, but actually as, like, people who probably need their help. So that's been really cool is getting two laws changed. And the long-term effects of that, like, we have no idea how big that could be. Right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially that second law with saying, all right, well, instead of, yeah, prosecuting and and going after the people who are doing this, like, let's work on the people or, or the society as a whole, the mindset as a whole, and then give the people the help that need it. Because, yeah, I think a lot of times people, as you mentioned, oh, this, this person's a hooker and we don't have to get into too deep into this. Mm, yeah. But just reading a book that I was reading the past week, you know, it's uh, there's all a stigma around the people doing it and you kind of forget that, hey, there might be a reason they're in this. Maybe maybe it was voluntary in the beginning. Maybe it wasn't, you know, and getting those people out and rehabilitating and things like that, I think is a major, major thing that a lot of that, that's a missing piece of the puzzle because no one wants to mm-hmm. talk about it. Totally. Like, I mean, it's a supply and demand issue. If if people are paying for sex, people will be trafficked for sex. So but at the same time, we can't criminalize the sellers of sex because it's sort of like if, if so, let's say a woman is in a domestic violence situation at home. Do we arrest her because she's being hurt, or do we arrest the person who's doing the violence? It's the same with like um, loan sharking. Like um, it's illegal to be a loan shark, but it's not illegal to seek out a high interest loan if you're in desperate need. So that's kind of how we see it, and hopefully, it prevents a lot of trafficking. Interesting. And then the documentary that you're co-director and co-producer on, Red Light, Green Light, how did that come about? Because you mentioned that you traveled to 10 countries. And even just watching the trailer, you can tell that this is a high quality documentary. How were you guys able to take your skills, your knowledge and put it into something like this? Because it's no easy task to make something that actually is high quality like that. Yeah. um, Actually, that's kind of funny, Travis. Michelle and I are not... um, directors of photography like holding the camera is not our strong suit we're we're writers and directors right at heart so we actually had a filmmaker friend uh we took him to like a film store and we said okay here's our budget outfit us a kit so he he like got a kit together and then he literally printed two pages of instructions and we followed them point by point to set up every single interview turn on the camera plug it in (laughs) like turn on your lights like everything adjust your shutter adjust your iso and we basically just followed his two sheets of instructions for all 52 (laughs) interviews (laughs) that's awesome two sheets of instructions see that's why you can have schools where you're self-taught right because all you need is two sheets of instruction you can basically do anything (laughs) exactly yeah like i mean so now my wife is actually she's learning the editing side of things, video editing, and she's learning everything on lynda.com. It's like 9 bucks a month, like and she can learn anything to do with editing film. So yeah, it's been it's been quite the process, but um 
yeah, the the film's been seen by you know tens of thousands of people, and it's not even out on DVD or Netflix yet, or like Amazon or iTunes or anything. So we did we did a ninety six city tour live tour with the film when it came out. <laughs> so we drove like twenty thousand miles in eight months. It was insane. Yeah, I think that's that's really cool that you guys are doing it. You know, you're bootstrapping everything, and that's exactly what we've done at Extra Pack of Peanuts. You know, we're like, hey, we want to do more videos, so we taught ourselves, and the first ones are pretty bad when I look back. But the point is, you just do it, and I think that that harkens back to when you talked about starting the charity too. You just try it. You just start. And we've done all the video editing ourselves now. And um, you know, as it gets going, you get much better, and then maybe you hire someone or have someone do one part of it. But I think so many people get stuck on the idea of, I don't know how to do this or I don't have these skills when really the ability to get the skills involves, yeah, going online and finding someone to teach you or teaching yourself, all of which can be done very cheaply and very easily anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. I agree. So red light, green light, how can people check that out? Because you mentioned it's not on DVD or anything like that. If they are interested in seeing the documentary, what can they do? Yeah, it's actually coming out on DVD in a couple months. Uh, the website's redlightgreenlightfilm.com, and you can watch the trailer and get on the list to pre-order in the whole nine yards. Awesome. And tell us a little bit about this, what did you say, 96-city tour? 96 cities yeah. in eight months. Why 96? And man, that must have been pretty crazy. Yeah, like, well, we just, why 96? We just go where we're invited. So, <laughs> we, right, like, um, so we basically did a big sweep across Canada to start along with a petition drive, letter writing campaign, getting people to meet with their members of parliament, uh, really pushing to get the law changed. And that was very helpful, obviously. Um, yeah, so, like, I mean, like I said, it's it's amazing because you get to meet cool people all over the world. Um, we've also, you know, we've had some pretty solid hate mail from John's and pro-prostitution sex workers and whatnot. But overall, um, it's been really cool to see not just the brokenness in this world while we're filming these documentaries in red light districts, but also seeing the beauty that also exists in this world. So it was nice to do the tour and see the other side of of this (laughs) nasty business. Yeah, I assume there must be times when it does feel a bit overwhelming and maybe a bit defeating because you're you're bringing up a topic that is tough to talk about. And obviously when you're in amongst it is something that is inherently bad. Totally. Like, I mean, the, Travis, the youngest girl that we interviewed, uh, she was 12 years old when she was trafficked. She was servicing men in the back of a car in a parking garage in the Netherlands. Like she forget shaking my hand. Like she couldn't even make eye contact when we walked in. Like these girls, like they're, some of them are brutalized. So it's, yeah, you have to, you leave interviews like that and you're just totally exhausted and you're like totally like, this world is the worst, but there is hope. Yeah. And one of the things then that you did, I believe this was why you guys were filming was you decided to embark on kind of another mission. And that was the year of living prayerfully, which is interesting. I don't know if you got the idea from AJ Jacobs with the year of living biblically or not, but can you talk a little bit about the year of living prayerfully? Yeah, so I actually got AJ's permission to draft off of his title. He's a awesome guy, and we had been chatting, and he was gracious enough to to let me do that. It's very different, of course. He basically tries to like live the Old Testament literally for a year. Basically, how it started was we were in the red light districts of Amsterdam. We're shooting undercover, and there's like hundreds of drunk guys just roaming the streets, women in the window, police on horseback. And my wife got to go into a number of these red light windows with a friend of hers who's a care worker. And these girls are sick 
and they're tired and they're scared. And one of them just looked out at the mob and she whispered one word, dangerous. Because what happens is if their team wins the soccer game or whatever sport they're watching, they come and they celebrate with the girls. But if their team loses, they come and take out their aggression on the girls. So either way, the girls lose. And in the middle of this district is the oldest building in Amsterdam. And it's an 800-year-old church, still active. And every hour on the hour, the church bells ring and men are abusing women to the soundtrack of church bells. And I stood in the middle of this and I was just completely overwhelmed. And I just said, God, I need your power in prayer to end this. And that started me on this pilgrimage where I ended up going 37,000 miles around the world to explore different prayer traditions across all sorts of denominations, including some of the kind of weird uncles and crazy cousins in my faith family. So yeah, it was a wild, it was an amazing year. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, we got to dig into this year. I mean, 37,000 miles. You've done some incredible things there. I like that you, you not based it, but used AJ's um, book title and, and he gave you permission. He's come on the podcast as well. So we're coming full circle here now. Amazing. Yeah, a fascinating guy in his own right, for sure. If you guys haven't checked out his book, Year of Living Biblically, he's an amazing writer. And then Jared's book, Year of Living Prayerfully. You could just do those back to back, right? <laughs> Supplement each other. All right. So Year of Living Prayerfully, how did you start? Like, you know, you have this idea of, okay, I, I want to do this. I want to kind of travel the world and meet all these people and different faiths and figure out what ties them together and how they're similar and how they're different. But that is a huge, again, a huge goal to undertake. And we've been talking about big goals that you've undertaken already. Did you just do it right away? Was there planning to it? Did you reach out to people around the world? How did you make your route? All the kind of stuff that leads up to actually doing it. That's one thing I love about your podcast is you never ask one question. You rapid never. fire five or six and then, <laughs> and then let, let the people choose, which is awesome. Okay, so I'll start with um, how I figured out the route. So I decided to start with Judaism because Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So I thought, okay, I'll start with kind of Judaism. And then I moved into um, Greek Orthodoxy, which is kind of like the oldest surviving uh, Judeo-Christian kind of strain. And then... I went on to Catholicism because it's the biggest, and then Protestantism and Pentecostals and Quakers and all sorts of... So that's how that worked. So the very first thing I did was I celebrated Passover in Brooklyn with ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews. So I actually emailed 78 rabbis, and I got rejected 77 times, which is fine by me because I ended up celebrating Passover uh, in a rabbi's house with him and his disciples. Like We didn't leave till almost midnight, and that was like entering a totally other world, Travis. It was crazy. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be... Uh, well, one, why were they denying you? And and also then, because of course I can't ask just one question, um, with, the, <laughs> with the denying you, I don't know, were you worried that it was going to be really weird? Because obviously you're going into someone's tradition that they know everything about and you know maybe a little bit, maybe you Wikipedia it beforehand, maybe you have some prior knowledge, right? But I would feel very anxious, I think. And and I generally really enjoy meeting people as well, but it'd be tough. <laughs> right. Honestly, I'm okay with weird. Like, you got to remember that in this year, I ended up at like Westboro Baptist Church and like what, like all sorts of like far, I went to a nudist church, like all <laughs> like way weirder things. So... I, I just love meeting new people and like trying to understand their worldview. And so it actually like really made like the historical Jesus really, it put, helped me put in a lot more context simply because these guys are still following to the letter exact traditions that are 
like three, four thousand years old since the days of like Abraham and Moses. So like it's it's incredible to see like this time capsule of humanity. I'm wearing a yarmulke, dancing around a pulpit with a bunch of Jews, and Michelle's like behind a wooden wall so she won't distract the men folk and like it's pouring rain, but none of the Jews are carrying umbrellas because you're not allowed to make a tent during the Passover Seder, like, and somehow an umbrella counts as a tent, like all sorts of rules. Like, it's like, so for example, Michelle went to the bathroom at one point and when she was done, she turned off the light and Jews aren't allowed to turn on lights during Sabbath because that's considered work. So they asked her to turn it back on. So she's telling me this story as we're driving home. And I'm like, honey, I just went to the bathroom before we left and turned the light off. So we like left 15 Jews in the dark for the rest of Sabbath. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, those, see, they were so nice to let you go. That's why the other 77 denied you. They know you turn off the lights on them. That's right. I felt so bad. (laughs) So (laughs) as you're doing this, you had a plan on writing the book or was it a definite go that you were going to be writing this book when you started? Yeah, so I had um I really believe that if you want to like really fast track your area of expertise and skill and anything you need to apprentice to a master. So there's a guy named Mark Buchanan. He's uh, easily the most gifted, talented Christian writer alive today for just like pure skill of prose. I Skyped him from the jungles of Costa Rica during our first travel adventure with Michelle and said, hey, I uh, would love to intern uh, with you. I will volunteer in whatever capacity you want to use me 20 hours a week in exchange for one week where we either go for a beer or a coffee or a hike and we just talk about writing and leadership and life. And uh, so I ended up spending six months on Vancouver Island with him and just learned from him. So he, a couple years later, introduced me to his literary agent. And we've been chatting back and forth. And I told her that I was wanting to do this pilgrimage. And so we put together a book proposal. And uh, Hasidic Jews Passover was actually, we used that as our sample chapter. And from there, there was actually like a bidding war between four publishers. And so they actually, a publisher paid for the trip. And then when I got back, I had four weeks to hand in my first draft. So I ended up writing a 113,000-word manuscript in three and a half weeks. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. So that, okay. So, and that's how it works traditionally then with, hey, I'm going to use a sample chapter and then you shop it around. Is that generally how getting a book published works? Uh, for nonfiction, um, you're, yeah, for nonfiction, you probably need a platform and you need a good book proposal. I recommend, um, I used Michael Hyatt's uh, ebook. It's called uh, How to Write a Winning Nonfiction Book Proposal. And I like followed that to the letter. And I actually had offers of representation from a couple different agents. So yeah, I highly recommend Michael Hyatt for that. He used to be the, pub- the uh, CEO and publisher of Thomas Nelson. So he's a great resource. Yeah, so I got an agent and then we put together a book proposal. Now, if you're writing a novel, which is what I'm working on right now, you need to write the whole thing first. Sample chapters won't do the trick. So, um, but for nonfiction, yeah, you, platform and a good proposal with the right agent should hopefully get you a deal. That's cool because I didn't know that before I brought on two other authors, Steve Healy and Valley, who wrote The Ridiculous Race, which was a book about them chasing each other around the world, but going opposite ways. Yeah, I had no idea how it worked. I'm like, how'd you guys get published? You know, you how did this work? You they were comedians and they write for like modern family and stuff. And they said we did a sample thing where we each send each other to a destination without the other person knowing, and we used that as our sample and then we shopped it and people were like, This is really funny, you guys can write. So okay. 
All right, good to know. I didn't think yeah. we'd dive into like actually. Uh, yeah. So now people are going to take this, and we're going to have authors all <laughs> over the right. place. That's right. Awesome emergent journalism authors around yeah. here. Well, and so the thing probably worth noting is it's not like I just decided, okay, now I'm going to write a book. I've written anywhere from two to five hours a day, seven days a week for like at least seven years now. Like it is my passion and my my muse. And in any given year, I'll write, you know, half a million words at least. So I had had a lot of practice and I had interned with, you know, apprentice to a master. I can't stress that that enough for sure. So then when you got to go on this trip, let's let's talk about the trip itself Mm. and, and the actual year. And you said, you know, you got the book and so you have the money and they're paying for it. Was it, did you have a lot of autonomy? Did you get to make the decisions of where you were going or was it a lot of uh, a lot of the publishers saying, "Hey, you're going to go here, 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 and do this." No, like I mean, my editor, his name was John Farrar at Tyndale, and uh, he was a great guy, and he gave me full freedom. I think the sample chapter was well written; it was funny, and uh, he just really trusted me with that. So, and we talked a little bit about it, but basically, I was exploring Judeo-Christian prayer traditions, and he was kind of open to whatever I could land. So he's like. So I'm like, yeah, and then I'm going to try and meet the Pope. He's like, sure you are. <laughs> so then when I email him I'm, and I'm like, hey, I just had lunch at the Vatican and got an audience with the Pope. He's like, shut your mouth. There's no way. <laughs> like, So yeah, so I, I had total autonomy. So basically I went from Brooklyn with ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews. I then went to Israel and Palestine. I went to Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Then I went to Mount Athos, then Rome, Avila, Assisi, Camino de Santiago, Paris, London, all over the States. And then back home. Oh, and I also went to North and South Korea as well. I always yeah. forget that because it's like being on Mars. So, <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about a few of those adventures. Then. This is the end of part one of my interview with Jared Brock. But if you like this, don't worry. We are just getting started. You are going to want to tune in to part two of the interview. Jared tells some phenomenal stories, including how he got an audience with the Pope and what he was wearing for it, his walking over hot coals experience, why he mouthed off to a North Korean military official, and the fallout from that, and how an eco-farm in Costa Rica turned out to be a nightmare. So you're going to want to check out part two. All those awesome travel stories and more are part of that. You're going to be able to get that at extrapackpeanut.com slash pods. Of course, you'll be able to get that on iTunes or Stitcher or however you're listening to this podcast. I also want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors for this episode, Tortuga Backpacks. If you're looking for the perfect travel backpack, head on over to tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use the promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters that will give you 10% off your entire order. Thank you guys for listening today. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for the support as always and making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. Don't forget, check out part two of this interview. It only gets better. And until next time, happy free travels. (laughs) 